Part three of Lady Interfox by David Garnet. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Tony Addison. Yet next morning when he woke, he was distressed when he found that she was not in the bed with him, but was lying curled up at the foot of it. During breakfast she hardly listened when he spoke, and then impatiently, but sat staring at the dove. Mr. Tebrick sat silently looking out of window for some time. Then he took out his pocket-book. In it there was a photograph of his wife taken soon after their wedding. Now he gazed and gazed upon those familiar features, and now he lifted his head and looked at the animal before him. He laughed then bitterly, the first and last time, for that matter, that Mr. Tebrick ever laughed at his wife's transformation, for he was not very humorous. But this laugh was sour and painful to him. Then he tore up the photograph into little pieces and scattered them out of the window, saying to himself, Memories will not help me here. And, turning to the vixen, he saw that she was still staring at the caged bird, and as he looked, he saw her lick her chops. He took the bird into the next room, then acting suddenly upon the impulse, he opened the cage door and set it free, saying as he did so, Go, poor bird! Fly from this wretched house while you still remember your mistress who fed you from her coral lips. You are not a fit plaything for her now. Farewell, poor bird, farewell, unless, he added with a melancholy smile, you return with good tidings like Noah's dove. But, poor gentleman, his troubles were not over yet and indeed one may say that he ran to meet them by his constant supposing that his lady should still be the same to a tittle in her behaviour now that she was changed into a fox. Without making any unwarrantable suppositions as to her soul, or what had now become of it, though we could find a good deal to the purpose on that point in the system of Paracelsus, let us consider only how much the change in her body must need affect her ordinary conduct, so that before we judge too harshly of this unfortunate lady, we must reflect upon the physical necessities and infirmities and appetites of her new condition, and we must magnify the fortitude of her mind, which enabled her to behave with decorum, cleanliness and decency, in spite of her new situation. Thus she might have been expected to befoul her room, yet never could any one, whether man or beast, have shown more nicety in such matters. But at luncheon Mr. Tebrick helped her to a wing of chicken, and leaving the room for a minute to fetch some water, which he had forgot, found her at his return on the table, crunching the very bones. He stood silent 
dismayed and wounded to the heart at this sight. For we must observe that this unfortunate husband thought always of his vixen as that gentle and delicate woman she had lately been, so that whenever his vixen's conduct went beyond that which he expected in his wife, he was, as it were, cut to the quick, and no kind of agony could be greater to him than to see her thus forget herself. On this account it may indeed be regretted that Mrs. de Brick had been so exactly well-bred, and, in particular, that her table manners had always been scrupulous. Had she been in the habit, like a continental princess I have dined with, of taking her leg of chicken by the drumstick and gnawing the flesh, it had been far better for him now. But as her manners had been perfect, so the lapse of them was proportionately painful to him. Thus, in this instance, he stood, as it were, in silent agony, till she had finished her hideous crunching of the chicken-bones, and had devoured every scrap. Then he spoke to her gently, taking her on to his knee, stroking her fur, and fed her with a few grapes, saying to her, "'Sylvia, Sylvia, is it so hard for you? Try and remember the past, my darling, and by living with me, we will quite forget that you are no longer a woman. Surely this affliction will pass soon, as suddenly as it came, and it will all seem to us like an evil dream. Yet though she appeared perfectly sensible of his words, and gave him sorrowful and penitent looks like her old self, that same afternoon, on taking her out, he had all the difficulty in the world to keep her from going near the duck. There came to him then a thought that was very disagreeable to him, namely, that he dare not trust his wife alone with any bird, or she would kill it. And this was the more shocking to him to think of, since it meant that he durst not trust her as much as a dog even. For we may trust dogs, who are familiars, with all the household pets. Nay, more, we can put them upon trust with anything, and know they will not touch it not even if they be starving. But things were come to such a pass with his vixen that he dared not in his heart trust her at all. Yet she was still in many ways so much more woman than fox that he could talk to her on any subject, and she would understand him better far than the oriental women who are kept in subjection can ever understand their masters unless they converse on the most trifling household topics. Thus she understood extremely well the importance and duties of religion. She would listen with approval in the evening when he said the Lord's Prayer, and was rigid in her observance of the Sabbath. Indeed, the next day being Sunday, he, thinking no harm, proposed their usual game of piquet, but no, she would not play Mr. Tabrick, not understanding at first what she meant, though he was usually very quick with her, he proposed it to her again, which she again refused, and this time to show her meaning, made the sign of the cross with her paw. This exceedingly rejoiced and comforted him in his distress. He begged her pardon, 
and fervently thanked God for having so good a wife, who, in spite of all, knew more of her duty to God than he did. But here I must warn the reader from inferring that she was a papist, because she then made the sign of the cross. She made that sign, to my thinking, only on compulsion, because she could not express herself except in that way, for she had been brought up as a true Protestant, and that she still was one, is confirmed by her objection to cards, which would have been less than nothing to her, had she been a papist. Yet that evening, taking her into the drawing-room, so that he might play her some sacred music, he found her, after some time, cowering away from him in the farthest corner of the room, her ears flattened back, and an expression of the greatest anguish in her eyes. When he spoke to her, she licked his hand, but remained shivering for a long time at his feet, and showed the clearest symptoms of terror, if he so much as moved towards the piano. On seeing this, and recollecting how ill the ears of a dog can bear with our music, and how this dislike might be expected to be even greater in a fox, all of whose senses are more acute from being a wild creature. Recollecting this, he closed the piano, and taking her in his arms, locked up the room, and never went into it again. He could not help marvelling, though, since it was but two days after she had herself led him there, and even picked out for him to play and sing those pieces which were her favourites. That night she would not sleep with him, neither in the bed nor on it, so that he was forced to let her curl herself up on the floor. But neither would she sleep there, for several times she woke him by trotting around the room, and once, when he had got sound asleep, by springing on the bed and then off it, so that he woke with a violent start and cried out, but got no answer either, except hearing her trotting round and round the room. Presently he imagines to himself that she must want something, and so fetches her food and water, but she never so much as looks at it, but still goes on her rounds, every now and then scratching at the door. Though he spoke to her, calling her by her name, she would pay no heed to him, or else only for the moment. At last he gave her up, and said to her plainly, the fit is on you now, Sylvia, to be a fox, but I shall keep you close, and in the morning you will recollect yourself and thank me for having kept you now. So he lay down again, but not to sleep, only to listen to his wife running about the room and trying to get out of it. Thus he spent what was perhaps the most miserable night of his existence. In the morning she was still restless, and was reluctant to let him wash and brush her, and appeared to dislike being scented, but, as it were, to bear with it for his sake. Ordinarily, she had taken the greatest pleasure imaginable in her toilette, so that on this account, added to his sleepless night, Mr. Tabrick was utterly dejected, and it was then that he resolved to put a project into execution that would show him, so he thought, whether he had a wife, or only a wild vixen in his house. But yet he was comforted that she bore it all with him, though so restlessly, 
that he did not spare her, calling her a bad wild fox, and then speaking to her in this manner. Are you not ashamed, Sylvia, to be such a madcap, such a wicked hoyden, you who were particular in dress? I see it was all vanity. Now you have not your former advantages, you think nothing of decency. His words had some effect with her too, and with himself, so that by the time he had finished dressing her, they were both in the lowest state of spirits imaginable, and neither of them far from tears. Breakfast she took soberly enough, and after that he went about getting his experiment ready, which was this. In the garden he gathered together a nosegay of snowdrops, those being all the flowers he could find, and then, going into the village of Stokoe, bought a Dutch rabbit, that is, a black and white one, from a man there who kept them. When he got back, he took her flowers, and, at the same time, set down the basket with the rabbit in it, with the lid open. Then he called to her, Sylvia, I have brought some flowers for you. Look, the first snowdrops. At this she ran up very prettily, and never giving as much as one glance at the rabbit, which had hopped out of its basket, she began to thank him for the flowers. Indeed, she seemed indefatigable in showing her gratitude, smelt them, stood a little way off looking at them, then thanked him again. Mr. Tabrick, and this was all part of his plan, then took a vase and went to find some water for them, but left the flowers beside her. He stopped away five minutes, timing it by his watch and listening very intently, but never heard the rabbit squeak. Yet when he went in, what a horrid shambles was spread before his eyes. Blood on the carpet, blood on the armchairs and antimacassars, even a little blood spurted on to the wall, and what was worse, Mrs. Tabrick tearing and growling over a piece of the skin and the legs, for she had eaten up all the rest of it. The poor gentleman was so heartbroken over this, that he was like to have done himself an injury, and that one moment thought of getting his gun to have shot himself and his vixen too. Indeed, the extremity of his grief was such that it served him a very good turn, for he was so entirely unmanned by it that for some time he could do nothing but weep and fell into a chair with his head in his hands and so kept weeping and groaning. After he had been some little while employed in this dismal way, his vixen, who had by this time bolted down the rabbit, skin, head, ears, and all, came to him, and putting her paws on his knees, thrust her long muzzle into his face, and began licking him. But he, looking at her now with different eyes, and seeing her jaws still sprinkled with fresh blood, and her claws full of the rabbit's fleck, would have none of it. But though he beat her off four or five times, even to giving her blows and kicks, she still came back to him, crawling on her belly and imploring his forgiveness with wide-open sorrowful eyes. Before he had made this rash experiment of the rabbit and the flowers, he had promised himself that if she failed in it, 
he would have no more feeling or compassion for her than if she were in truth a wild vixen out of the woods. This resolution, though the reasons for it had seemed to him so very plain before, he now found more difficult to carry out than to decide on. At length, after cursing her and beating her off for upwards of half an hour, he admitted to himself that he still did care for her, and even loved her dearly in spite of all, whatever pretense he affected towards her. When he had acknowledged this, he looked up at her, and met her eyes fixed upon him, and held out his arms to her, and said, Oh, Sylvia, Sylvia, would you had never done this? Would I had never tempted you in a fatal hour? Does not this butchery and eating of raw meat and rabbit's fur disgust you? Are you a monster in your soul as well as in your body? Have you forgotten what it is to be a woman? Meanwhile, with every word of his, she crawled a step nearer on her belly, and at last climbed sorrowfully into his arms. His words then seemed to take effect on her, and her eyes filled with tears, and she wept most penitently in his arms, and her body shook with her sobs, as if her heart were breaking. This sorrow of hers gave him the strangest mixture of pain and joy that he had ever known, for his love for her returning with a rush, he could not bear to witness her pain, and yet must take pleasure in it, as it fed his hopes of her one day returning to be a woman. So the more anguish of shame his vixen underwent, the greater his hopes rose, till his love and pity for her increasing equally he was almost wishing her to be nothing more than a mere fox, than to suffer so much by being half-human. At last he looked about him, somewhat dazed with so much weeping, then set his vixen down on the ottoman, and began to clean up the room with a heavy heart. He fetched a pail of water, and washed out all the stains of blood, gathered up the two antimacassars, and fetched clean ones from the other rooms. While he went about this work, his vixen sat and watched him very contritely, with her nose between her two front paws, and when he had done, he brought in some luncheon for himself, though it was already late, but none for her, she having lately so infamously feasted. But water he gave her, and a bunch of grapes. Afterwards she led him to the small tortoise-shell cabinet, and would have him open it. When he had done so, she motioned to the portable stereoscope which lay inside. Mr. Tabrick instantly fell in with her wish, and after a few trials adjusted it to her vision. Thus they spent the rest of the afternoon together, very happily looking through the collection of views which he had purchased, of Italy, Spain, and Scotland. This diversion gave her great apparent pleasure, and afforded him considerable comfort, but that night he could not prevail upon her to sleep in bed with him, and finally allowed her to sleep on a mat beside the bed, where he could stretch down and touch her. So they passed the night with his hand upon her head. End of part three.